This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Oxen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Pretty, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show Monday mailbag, getting up a little later than normal, but it, hey, it's President's Day weekend, and uh, I think we all just took an opportunity to sleep in here for a second. Um, rough week for the men's basketball program, uh, rough week for the women's basketball program, and yet a good week for the football program. I think we're going to touch on kind of all three of those topics on, on the mailbag. Yeah, I was just saying before we started recording, I liked, I really like the, uh, I guess, variety of questions today. We have four of them we're going to answer, three football, and the last one's like a three-parter about men's and women's basketball that allows us to kind of talk about big picture stuff. So I thought that was a good one to end on. But we're going to start where I think probably most listening would like us to start with the question from at Prince Puddles. What's the impact of Chase Coda in the wide receiver room this year? Depth is an issue, but given the level of talent still on the roster, how much could we see him play in 2022? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Again, a perfect usage of hashtag Austin Everybody um, that asked a question used the hashtag. Um, for those unfamiliar, uh, Chase Cota was a very highly regarded top 150 recruit out of South Medford about four years ago. Ended up signing with UCLA. I think it's probably up for debate what happens if uh, there's not a coaching change there um, about where he would have landed. He might have ended up at Oregon originally. Um, but needless to say, I think this is a big addition. We've been kind of talking for a while about Okay, what's going on at receiver? Do they have enough bodies? Do they have the depth? Do they have veterans? Um, and Coda accomplishes that. He's not, I don't think, the highest event player. I mean, you look at his production at UCLA, he had some pretty good games. I think he had like 155 yards and a couple touchdowns and 19 against Washington State. Um, but after that, no 100-yard games, um, some decent showings against good competition. But this is a player who um, obviously provides depth. I think potentially could push to start. Um, mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting to see kind of that competition now on the outside between Dante Thornton, Troy Franklin, and, and Coda. Um, and I might include like an Isaiah Bravard as maybe an outside chance to at least challenge for a spot. Um, but I don't know, guys. I think Coda was a, a player that's certainly needed. I don't think anybody is under the assumption he's like going to be a game breaker, that he's going to lead the team in receiving yards or anything like that. At least that's not my expectation. But I think you needed to find a player or two at receiver based upon the depth. We've talked about this for a while, and it took Oregon a little longer than it took with a couple other position groups. You think of how they addressed corner, which they got done by the time they you know, they signed the class. Boom, they'd added about three or four guys. Um, receiver took a little longer, but I think Coda's a player who comes in and you expect he's going to make contributions right away in 2022. He's automatically the – leading receiver on the team for Oregon in career receiving yards, um, which I think speaks to the volume of production that Oregon lost this past off season. um, Cause Coda has just 67 career receptions for 883 yards. Um, So there's, there was not a lot of talent coming back, or I should say there wasn't a lot of on field production. There's certainly a ton of talent. There's certainly a ton of potential. um, But this was a, 
or a position group that didn't have a lot of on-field success returning in 2022. Cotto helped fixes that. He had one career game with over 100 yards. That came this past season against Washington State when he went for four catches for 147 yards and a touchdown. Um, so he's only had one game where he's gone over 100. He's had three other games where he's finished over 60 yards, um, and two of those came this past season as well. So it'll be curious to see just – I don't think he's going to be a guy that leads the team in receptions, but it wouldn't surprise me if he's number two or number three, um, and it wouldn't surprise me if he starts a majority of the season uh, for Oregon at 2021. Yeah, this isn't a guy who you expect to be the number one receiver, receiver on this team. Yeah, this is someone who provides a lot of depth, who provides experience, who can, um, you know, teach the younger guys and Franklin Thornton and, and Chris Hudson. Um, I like the move a lot. Uh, yeah. I think we've all been on this podcast clamoring for Oregon to add more wide receiving depth. They got it in Justice Lowe in the class of 22, and they get it in here in Chase Coda. Um, you know, they could probably still use another wide receiver or two just because behind Hudson, Franklin, and Thornton, um, you really don't have a lot of players who have even in-game experience, really. Um, so that's a bit of an issue going there. Um, maybe Seven McGee makes the full-time return or the full-time transfer to, to slot wide receiver and helps them out there. We'll see eventually, which kind of will, will ultimately bring us into our next question. But um, I like Coda. I like his game. Um, Eric, you brought it up, but, you know, class of 2018 um, – you know, Fully Taggart doesn't leave Florida to go to Florida State. There's a, probably a good chance that he ends up at Oregon already. Um, and the other thing about Coda is that he's he's never really stayed healthy for UCLA. He had one year where he played in over 10 games. And that was 2019 in his sophomore season. Obviously, 2020 is a shortened season. Right. So they, they couldn't have played 10 games regardless. But he didn't play over 10 games this year. And he played in six or seven in his freshman year in 2018. Um I think this is a player who, if he's healthy, can be a really, really good impact player. I don't think he's going to go get you seven for 100 every game. Um, but I think everybody and I think the coaching staff would be happy if he got you four for 50 almost every night. Um, four yards or four, four receptions for 50 yards. Um, I think that'd be great production. I think he can open up the middle of the, the, middle of the field, open up a lot of slot stuff for Seven McGee or himself. Um, I know he plays primarily outside for, for UCLA, but UCLA's wide receiver attack is a little different than what we kind of anticipate Oregon's to be um, with the more traditional outside receiver in Thornton or Franklin. Um, but I overall, I like the move. Um, I've seen a lot of people questioning just kind of like why I make this move right now. Um, Oregon needs depth. You know, they have a lot of talent at wide receiver. I like who they have in, in terms of potential, like Matt was saying, but they don't have any experience. And if somebody goes down with an injury, which is almost guaranteed to happen because we're playing, we're talking about football here. Um, you need a player like that who can come in and at least fill some of that, some of that gap in terms of production. And I think Coda can do that. I think um, if there's an opportunity out past spring ball for, we're going to pick up another wide receiver with experience. I think they should do it just because of, again, the depth chart overall um, and not have to maybe rely on, turning Brian Addison into a wide receiver again. But overall, I think it's a good move. I think it's a solid pickup for Oregon and uh, should help them down the line. 
We should note for those maybe unfamiliar, he's a legacy recruit. His dad, Chad Cota, starred with the Ducks um, in the mid-90s, was a safety, played in the NFL for a handful of years. His cousin, Brady Breeze, I think anyone listening to his podcast is probably familiar with who that is. Um, Dakota, that is his cousin. Uh, yeah, Dakota's... Oh, Jared. Well, there you go. Jared. Jared is learning as well as we roll through this. Yeah, no, the Codas, the Breezes, that that family there has has provided some pretty darn good ducks. And I know Chase, we're getting him for one year at Oregon, but I think the anticipation is he's somebody who can contribute. And, and frankly, when he was coming up in eighteen, Matt can attest to this. This was one of the better wide receivers the state had seen in in several years. Long time. You know, um, big physical guy who actually I think surprised a little bit with his athletic kind of tools with his speed, really good route runner. We'll see what he's able to do at Oregon. But as we said, I, I think this is a necessary move, and I don't think any of us are under the expectation he's going to lead the team in receiving probably. But I think there's certainly room for him to, like Matt said, maybe he starts most of the games. And if he doesn't start, he's I think he's one of your top four guys without question. I don't think there's I – mean, unless something unless someone else really develops, um, I would be stunned if he's not somebody who's, who's one of your four guys that plays the most. So I think it was a necessary move, and I like the move. All right. Moving on from with a question from at Ducks Cruise. What are you most looking forward to in this year's spring game? Hashtag Hots and Audibles. Did, have we talked about the spring schedule on a podcast, Matt? I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't think, think so. so. Okay. So, it starts real soon. I was going to say, spring ball starts on March 10th, which I'm pointing at my calendar, is like two weeks from now. So get ready. Um, and then they will go through, uh, I think, about a handful of practices go on spring break, which has become kind of the norm, at least at Oregon, under a couple of previous staffs, reconvene, um, and then conclude with their spring game. And I didn't prepare to have this in front of me. Is that April 20th? Is that correct? 23rd. 23rd, 23rd yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, spring game on April 23rd. Um, so we're talking about something that's way down the line here, but I have a I have a couple of thoughts here um, in terms of what I'm most looking forward to. Uh, just a, how about just what this stuff looks like schematically? Like first off, like two new coaches, you know, coaching the offense and the defense. Um, you know, Ken, Kenny Dillingham coaching the offense. Dan Landing will have his fingerprints all over the defense, but technically Tosh Lupoy is is your coordinator. Um, mm-hmm. really curious to see kind of what those, you know, what they look like on each side of the football. Um, you know, what kind of tendencies or differences we learn. Um, hopefully we're able to watch practices. We haven't got any confirmation on that. My expectation is that will be the case. Um, and I'm also curious to see, I think another thing that, that stands out every spring, you know, I'm talking spring as opposed to spring game, but we'll get there is, is players playing different spots. Where do they see players playing? You know, I mean, like a seven McGee is a great example. Is he a running back? Is he a receiver? Is he both? Um, Jackson Powers Johnson is somebody who I know there's been talk about defensive line. Is that where he sticks? Does he move back to the offensive line? Um, Brian Addison has been a player we've talked about, as I think suggested maybe he could play receiver. Is that an angle they go with? Um, you know, I mean, Dan Landing even suggested they could get creative in the backfield at running back with moving some players around. Will we get some sort of inclinations on what that might look like? I just think there's a lot from a position perspective that you get excited about, or at least intrigued by, in terms of how they're rotating through. Um, and then obviously, I think, you know, the, the thing that I always look forward to in this is just seeing who emerges, um, especially young players. We don't have a full list. I don't think of all the early enrollees and who that will be. But I'm sure it'll be a pretty gar- uh, large contingent of players. And each spring, we always see a couple of guys really stand out. And sometimes it's not the players that we expect to stand out. I remember a couple of years ago, Jamal Hill showed up and it was kind of like he was a lesser recruit. And it was pretty clear pretty early, like, OK, this is a guy who's going to be a contributor. Jordan Scott, several years before that, was kind of a similar thing. I think that might have been a fall enrollee. 
Um, but you know, you just, you never know in, in terms of who's going to show up and, and really turn heads. And I think that's always a thing I'm looking for. And then the other one is obviously just quarterback play. I think it's, it's a big question for everybody is, is kind of a, how much of these true freshman guys improved? How much is, you know, how much is Ty Thompson improved? How much has Jay Butterfield improved? Because again, we haven't really seen them play since last fall. Uh, in fall camp, um, you know, we saw a little bit of tie in some games. We saw a little, a very, uh, even lesser amount of Jay in games. But I still go back to that fall scrimmage that I know uh, Jared and I were at, where I thought Ty Thompson looked like the best quarterback on the field for the Ducks. And, you know, obviously he was given very few opportunities after that. I'm curious to see in a larger sample size in a spring game setting and hopefully again in spring practices what his improvements have been. And, and this is getting to a, I don't want to jump too much to the next question, but kind of what is Bo Nix? How does that, you know, right. how does that transition look? I, I think those are some of the things I'm looking for. And, um, you know, we talked about some of the position groups we have questions on. I'm sure it'll be good to get some kind of resolutions to like, okay, who's the team's top pass rusher? Who, who are the starting corners? We probably won't have total clarity there, but we'll at least have a depth chart to come away with after a spring game, or yep. at least a pretty clear idea of what one might look like. So um, there's a handful of things that I'm, I guess, most looking forward to from spring football. Really, in general, I'm just really excited to get out and, and kind of dive in. Spring, spring ball is one of my favorite times of the year. It's fresh. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the uh, I guess, um, intensity of a football season can be kind of wear on you. Sometimes to have practices and games without stakes are kind of enjoyable. So it'll be fun to get out there and kind of get a feel for what the 2022 Oregon football team looks like. You covered a lot there, so I'm only going to focus on one. <laughs> I know. I'm only going to focus on one area because you touched on a lot that I was going to bring up. That's what I was going at with that. Right. Um, and it's the offense for me because there's a lot of layers here. I think because recruiting moves in a much quicker step now than it had five years ago. You know, we're we're hearing you know quarterbacks would like to be you know committed in end of spring, early summer, and we're, we know some quarterbacks even that are in the 2024 class want to be decided on where they're going to school going into their junior year of football. So the recruiting element of this has sped up, and I think this is one of the rare instances in spring football where. It might be beneficial for Dan Lanning and offensive coordinator Kenny Dillingham to show a little bit more than you normally would um, in a spring game and in spring practices when recruits are here, obviously, to showcase what this offense will be because we have no idea. And Mm -hmm. that's not a negative right now, but from a recruiting perspective, recruits want to know, what am I running? What does your system look like? What is it based off of? And coaches can can say all they want, whether it's at Oregon or anywhere else, hey, this is what we want to become. This is what we want to do. This is our plan. And, and map it out on paper. But until a player, until a parent, until a high school coach, a seven-on-seven coach, um, until a transfer actually sees the results on the football field, it's all just talk. And so for me – I want to I want to see what the offense looks like so that we have an idea going into the 2022 season because that shapes the entire narrative of what the player personnel Oregon has on that side of the football and it will also benefit in recruiting because then they can legitimately go out and showcase to to recruits this is what we're trying to do and this is where mm-hmm. you would fit 
into this. Um, and you don't want to wait until September to be able to, to show prospects where that fits. I, yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch that I want to go find. Um, but kind of like you, Eric, spring football is like my favorite thing to, to cover because it's I, there's I don't know. There's like no ramifications for how it goes. It's not like the fall season where there's a game on Saturday, so you can't go watch any practices. But yeah, it's just a bunch of fun. Um, so I'm, obviously I'm really excited to watch that in the first part. Um, offense in general. I'd like to see what they what their offense really looks like under Dillingham, um, because we you know we got a glimpse of what Moorhead might provide for the 2021 season, um, but you know I'm I'm still under the impression that we didn't actually get to watch exactly what Joe Moorhead wanted to run at Oregon. Um, there were still elements of the pistol, and I cannot wait for that to be out of Oregon's offense for the most part. I'm sure there might be one or two plays, but good Lord, get rid of it. Jared, I, I'm um, under the impression we're not seeing the pistol again. I don't think we see I that. pray to the Lord that we never see the pistol again in an Oregon offense because I think that was a brutal decision. And clearly that was you – know, that's why I'm under the impression that Moorhead couldn't actually do what he wanted to because Jim Astro's pistol was still implemented in the offense. But – so I'd like to see what happens when you have a head coach that's totally defensive minded who recruits offensive offensive recruits but doesn't do anything on the offense and just lets his coordinators do their actual job. Um, so that'll be fun to watch. Uh, quarterback room, uh, this will be you know, more in the, in the next question, spoiler alert, of uh, how, how good Bo Nix looks, how good Ty Thompson looks, how good Jay Butterfield looks. Um, I'd like to see what the running back room looks like. Um, you know, just has Cardwell – has he improved in shape, something like that? Not that he wasn't in good shape to begin with, but what does he look like now? What does Sean Dollars look like now? Jordan James, how does he look? Could he be a guy who was in the impact? Um, we just went over the running or the wide receiver room. Um, offensive line, I don't think that there's a lot to really think about there since most of the guys are returning. Um, I think we pretty much know what that's going to look like, maybe other than um, just how Adrian Clem is a teacher and how he is as a coach and keep an eye on that. Um, even after all the offensive stuff I just went through, I am most excited to watch the defense work um, because I think, you know, the idea is that under Dan Lanning, the defense should be Oregon's bread and butter for the next couple of years. Um, so I want to see how, basically how, how Mario would, would coach the offensive line and how he would make the him the them like his little babies. Like I want to go watch Dan Lanning go coach linebackers and want to watch him work with Noah Sewell and Justin Flo, uh, see what they do with Jeffrey Bassa. Um, it just kind of, you know, what it, what it looks like with, with Oregon's new defense and, and him and Tosh Lupoy and Demetrius Martin, like those are some really good defensive minded fellas over there. And so that's what I'm most excited to watch. Honestly, um, I'd really like to see who can step up in the, in the pass rush because I don't think Oregon has a number one guy right now. Um, Brandon Dorless is their best interior guy, and Braden Swinson's probably their best outside guy. Um, I don't know if that's a re recipe to replace the production that Kayvon Thibodeau could provide, but I'm willing to watch. I'm willing to see what they come up with, and um, you know, maybe they just send Noah Sewell and Flo on some more blitzes, but um, I'd also like to keep an eye on the, the Jaleels in the backfield if they if they are those early enrollees. Um and see what they look like and see if they could compete at a freshman level 
um, you know, how Bridges and, and, and Dante Manning have improved. Um, there's just a whole lot. But overall, like, I can't wait to watch how the defense works. I know I, I said, like, a thousand things. and I, <laughs> I, 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 I did more. You, oh, you, you <laughs> lose competition. Well, let me, let me warm up. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I was I was just gonna say I think I, I do think one thing I, I will be curious to see is is how much how involved Justin Flo can be in, in spring practice. I, I know that yeah. was the, they pointed to him being the previous staff pointed to him being available in spring, but I'm still really excited by what the combination of Noah Sewell and Justin Flo can look like. And so if we get a chance to see that in the spring game, because remember we've seen that for like all of I think four quarters. I think yeah, I think we'll be able to see Sewell and Flo in the spring game. Um, at baseball media availability, Justin Flo was, you know, after coming out of out of the weight room for a workout and he looks to be in great shape. Um, okay. It's clear that he went through a full workout with no limitations. Okay. You know, I think the last time we all saw him, he was still on a scooter or, or using crutches to get around. Um, there's none of that. There's there's no limp, no anything like that. I think he's I think he's about as full go as full go gets before contact right now. It's a great sign. I, I'm just, I'm really, cu- I'm just excited to see those two play next yeah. to each other. You haven't really had an opportunity to, and I hope that's something we get to see in the spring. All right. I, real quick. I think it's interesting that what kind of gains will this team make from a strength and training yeah. Other position? Yeah. Because 2020, they were very limited in, what they could do from a weight training and a speed training standpoint, because they were not in Eugene. They were all at home because of COVID um, and the season on and off again. And then 2021, they probably couldn't just jump right into their normal strength training routines because of the long delay that came with the off season of 2020, which this is just me spitballing here, which probably could be a, an indication of why there were so many injuries. They didn't have a normal off-season training to prepare for the season. So now that they have one this year, this off-season, that would be something just spring, but also by August when we see this team for fall camp of just what does a full off-season of training entail for, for this team. Mm-hmm. That's a good one, Matt. I'm happy. I'm happy you brought that up. I, I'll, I'm also excited to see the punters and kickers, but I'm probably alone. Of course you are. <laughs> All right, third Five line star transfer, Andrew Boyle. No, I'm I'm so excited to see kickoff specialist Andrew Boyle at work. Uh, oh man. Uh, third one, third one from at B Fotaf one. What is the ceiling and what is the floor for Bo Nix and Ty Thompson? Hashtag odds and audibles. I'm going to include Jay Butterfield in here just because there are three scholarship quarterbacks, and I think he's deserving of that. Um, I think we would all I – mean, maybe, I won't speak for everybody, but I, I'm, I'm in the, under the assumption we would all expect the floor for Bo Nix to be higher than the other two um, just based upon his starting experience and, and what he's done already at this level. Um, you know, I think – I just did a story last week predicting kind of the offensive and defensive stats, and it was actually kind of alarming looking through some of Bo Nix's numbers at Auburn and just, you know, again, high floor, but the ceiling, I mean, it, he's not a guy who's from a production level has ever thrown for more than, I think, 16 touchdowns in a season and more than 2,500 or 2,600 yards. Um, that, that if, if that's the if that's the floor, that's not terrible, but it's not incredible. And I think some of that will improve playing, frankly, just much worse defenses out in the Pac-12 than in 
the most difficult division in all of college football by a pretty large margin. I think that part has to be said. Um, might help. <laughs> might help a little. I think that's a part that maybe gets lost if we're just trying to cherry picking stats. And that was something I kind of came away with looking at that. Um, I still think the ceiling for Ty Thompson is, is extremely high. And I, I, I don't know if that's purely perception wise. Um, I can't, I, I mean, I think back to a conversation I think we had in a podcast with, with Greg Biggins about Ty Thompson and about what his expectation was for Ty um, in his college career. And he basically said, 2021, we weren't expecting him to be ready to be a star, but it was after that. And now we're getting to that after that part. And we're getting into 2022 here, his second year. And again, I, I've said this a number of times. I don't think it needs to be reiterated too many times, but I expect Bo Nix will win the starting job and be the starting quarterback. But I still think maybe the ceiling of Ty Thompson is a little higher than it is with Bo Nix. And maybe that's just the unknown part. And we deal with this in every sport where a lot of times the, the people's favorite player is the player who people haven't seen actually play <laughs> because you build up what they can be. And in this instance, Ty Thompson's the highest rated quarterback recruit Oregon has ever signed, the highest ever enroll. Um, he had some great moments in the spring. He had some great moments in the fall. We just haven't really seen him so far. And I think a lot of people are still clamoring for that. I, I'm not going to be surprised at all if Ty Thompson – if put into a situation where he is a starting quarterback, Oregon has a huge and very successful start to his career, but it's going to be a lower floor than what you get from Bo Nix, I think, without question. So um, there's a roundabout way of me basically saying, I think Nix is the higher floor player and Ty Thompson is probably the higher ceiling player. But I will also caveat that with that, with saying that that can all be purely perception right now, because we really haven't seen enough of Ty to draw too many conclusions. Mm-hmm. I think best case, obviously, for Ty is he wins the job, which I think isn't out of the realm of possibilities. Um, I, I I certainly lean with Bo Nix being the front runner to win this job. Um, and I'm certainly a guy that hates doing percentages, but you know, I, I would probably say, like, probably a 25% chance that, that Ty wins the job, you know, like, or, or, or someone other than Ty or other than Bo Nix. Cause I, I don't want to let up on Jay Butterfield because he was a high profile quarterback as well. I think for whatever reason, the fan base has just kind of assumed Ty Thompson um, is automatically the best guy moving forward. And he, he may be, but maybe Jay is better suited for what, Dillingham wants to run um, out of Oregon. I don't know. But I think more likely we're going to see Bo Nix be the starting quarterback. And I think the the ceiling for a Bo Nix team is they win the conference. I think I still think that's a realistic scenario for this team. Um, they're not going to be the favorites. It will be Utah. But they'll be the favorites probably to come out of the north. And in a one-game – situation where they play Utah in the Pac-12 championship game or they play USC. It's one it's a it's a one-off. And I I, I think Oregon would have a chance, you know, a realistic chance against either of those two teams. Um I also think for both quarterbacks, it's probably a realistic scenario where this team wins eight games in the regular season and they lose four times. Um I, I don't have the confidence yet to come out and say that Oregon would definitively win the North if 
it was a fresh if it was a if it was a Butterfield or a Ty Thompson at quarterback. Um, I think they may they may win it, but they may have one extra loss to get there. Um, you know, be like a nine and three or a ten and two, opposed to a, an eleven and one or a ten and two t- type team from Bo Nix's land. But that that's kind of where I land. Like I I don't think there's a, a, a huge gap in the floor and ceiling or in, in the ceiling, but I think there's a little bit of a gap in the floor here. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the obvious answer is that the gap in the floor is, is big enough to the point where you would probably start Bo Nix if the season started in a week from now. Um, the ceiling is the, the differential between these two. Um, you know, people forget that Bo Nix was also a five-star quarterback coming out of high school who went to Auburn. Um, Look, uh, I, I think he's a solid quarterback. I think when you get in a, a three-year starter from the SEC um, playing in the hardest division in football when you have to go against Alabama and uh, you know Georgia and all those teams every single year, uh, and you get him, uh, I think that's a solid pickup no matter where you are in terms of your quarterback room. Um, I've, I've liked this move since the beginning. Um, it was clear last year, well, at, at least from an outsider's perspective, um, that Ty Thompson just wasn't necessarily ready to really get in-game experience when it mattered the most. Um, I know he had a second half against my brain is slipping right now when Anthony Brown was 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 injured in the first half. Stony Brook, there we go. Um, I wanted to say St. Bonaventures for some reason, but clearly not. Um, <laughs> go Bonnies. Um, we uh, yeah. So it's clear that Ty just wasn't ready. Um, I mean, the, the ultimate difference maker in this is – well, the two ultimate difference makers in this is how is Jay Butterfield? Is Did he get better? And uh, did Ty Thompson get better? Because both of those guys get better. Those are both, you know, highly rated recruits who a lot of people were very high on who had the pick of the litter of colleges to go to, and they both chose Oregon. And obviously Ty was rated higher than Butterfield because of his potential – uh, his growth, his maturity as a human being, his maturity in his body. Then Butterfield, um, I think Ty has probably the best arm strength on the team in terms of quarterbacks, including Bo Nix. Um, so if Ty could miraculously shows up and it's just worlds better than he was at the end of the season last year, that's a completely huge difference maker in this, in this program. However, the odds of that happening aren't that high. You know, it's, it's really hard to improve in the things that Ty needs to improve on in terms of reading defenses and, and, and reading his own offense and making reads uh, in terms of what wide receiver to throw to, uh, having touch on the ball just by an off-season workout. Um, you know, this requires practice experience, game experience. Um, I think Ty gets thrown under the bus for being a five-star freshman and not being ready because of other five-star freshman quarterbacks who were ready like Justin Fields, like Trevor Lawrence, like Caleb Williams, we saw at Oklahoma. Um, so I think this, the, the perception that he needs to be as good as those people or those players, excuse me, is wrong because um, in case we haven't noticed, like Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence were, were first-round draft picks with Lawrence going number one overall, um, that's hard to do. And those were, if you go through 24-7's all-time high school rated lists, like those guys were – in the top 20, right. both of them, you know, those are generational talents as some might say. Um, I think Ty Thompson can be very good. And that's where his ceiling leads you is that if he gets to that five-star proximity in terms of talent, 
he can lead Oregon to a, a Pac-12 title. But he has to get there first, and it's unfair to compare him to everybody else who was there before him. Yeah. Um, sometimes it just takes time, and in a day of modern information where you get things at the snap of a finger, people can't wait for that. And it might be this year where he's ready, and he and Bo Nix really have a competitive uh, spring camp and fall camp. And Dan Lanning has his first huge decision as a head coach of who to start a quarterback, or it may not. And Bo Nix is just clearly better than him, than Ty or Jay Butterfield. We'll see. I mean, this is this is all about the waiting game. This is why you play the games. This is why you have practices to see if these things actually come to fruition. But for now, to, to go a really long way of answering the question, Bo Nix, high floor, low ceiling prospect. Ty Thompson, high ceiling, low floor prospect. You got to take a risk on him. And if you feel that it's good enough, go for it. Um, I think Butterfield is is probably a medium floor, low ceiling guy. I feel like if you put him in, he can step up and, and play. But I don't necessarily think he's going to lead you to the promised land. I like what Matt did in terms of attaching some sort of wins and losses to the ceiling yeah. and floor, which I don't know if with, I'm not there with that was the, the question was trying to get at. Um, I, I, th- I think the ceiling for for this team, regardless of quarterbacks, is probably 10 wins and a conference championship. And I don't even know if it's that different between Bo Nix and Ty Thompson because Nix has the experience part. I just think that the floor is probably eight and four with Bo Nix, where it might be six and six with Ty Thompson. You know, I mean, I hate to say it, but quarterbacks at this age have slip up games where they don't play very well. I mean, Justin mm-hmm. Herbert is arguably the best arm talent, best quarterback to ever come through here. His first game against Washington, Oregon lost by seven touchdowns. Oh, man. And I know the circumstances are vastly different. Oregon was in a – the talent disparity was – that was a very – that was not a talented team at all that Justin debuted with. And the team Ty Thompson would be surrounded with would be much better. But my point is, like, it it takes some time. And so I think the, I think the, there seems to be some sort of sense that if Ty Thompson is given the keys – you know, the floor is at or similar to what Bonix is. I don't think that's the case. And I also think we have to understand there are growing pains. And if hypothetically Ty Thompson was to win the starting job, I'm not going to be surprised at all if it doesn't go very well, at least at times, and the fan base clamors and gets frustrated and tries to write him off when that's really premature because that's frankly what we do these days is we, we are extremely critical of whoever plays quarterback and we make assumptions without the expectation that they can get better. Um, Anthony Brown was the outlier because he was a 50 year senior and everybody kind of knew ultimately what he was showing was what he was. There wasn't room for growth. If Ty Thompson does win this job, I just hope that there's some sort of kind of understanding that, okay, maybe he's not incredible right now, but that there, his ceiling and that there's is, is still high and that there's room to grow. So I say that to premeditate potentially like people losing their minds in the fall if Ty wins the job and they lose to like UCLA and Cal or something in the middle of the season and everyone wants to go crazy. We're pretty spoiled with quarterbacks. Um, I mean, just think about how many young guys have showed up and have been really good almost right out of the jump. Um, Obviously, the first that comes to mind is Marcus Mariota as a redshirt freshman. And then a couple years later, Justin Herbert as a true freshman. I don't think – I think I think that the lack of years in between those two runs 
has skewed the perception at this position that it's now become, well, it just should happen no matter who we sign. Like, I don't know if people truly understand how impressive that was for both those guys and almost back-to-back successions to do what they did in Mariota's three years and, and Herbert's four. Um, you don't – that's not normal. And I, I think that's kind of expected at Oregon, which is a little unfair. It's a good point. Yeah, that's the context you have to have. And I think that is the expect- that is the context that builds these expectations. All right. We're going to finish it here with the fourth question, but this question has three questions, so really it's a six-question show. Uh, this is all men's and women's basketball from at the one llama. Um, I don't know if we're going to allow three questions like this usually, but for this show, because these are actually, I think, valid questions, we'll do it. Um, but um, maybe just stick with one question going forward. Um, the first one, and I'm going to toss this right to Matt. Uh, can the men's basketball team win three or four straight at the Pac-12 tournament to make it to the NCAA and he asked, what percentage do you give them? And it's just funny because Matt just like 10 minutes ago was like, I hate giving percentages. Give us a percentage, Matt. What are their odds? <laughs> um, it's going to largely depend upon the seating that they get. Um, I They're not mathematically eliminated, but let's just say that they are from getting the number one seed. Um, the number two seed is still possible. Um, there's a much better chance of it happening than the number one seed, but I don't think that will happen as well. They'll need a little bit of help, but the realistic finish here is Oregon could finish third um, in the seeding, and that that's important. It's really important for Oregon to get the three or the two seed because the team that they would play in the quarterfinal round would be another fringe, much further down the list here, fringe tournament team, a Washington state, um, a Stanford, who's got a really good net ranking for their win loss record, a Colorado team. That's kind of trying to push their way into the bubble at the end of the year. They will play one of those three teams more than likely. Um, and it wouldn't be a massive boost, but it would be a, a, a decent bump up in their net ranking. And then the second game that they would play would more likely be against USC or UCLA for the you know to, to get to the Paxwell championship game which would then be um the Arizona game uh, more, more than likely uh should Oregon get get that far I think if Oregon gets to the Pac-12 championship game they're in um it doesn't really matter what happens at that point obviously you want to take doubt out of the equation and just win the damn thing and, and get in but Getting to the Pac-12 championship game probably would ensure that you're in. But that is assuming Oregon wins its final four games of the regular season at home against UCLA, at home against USC, and then on the road at Washington and to finish the year on the road at Washington State. Three of those four teams are ahead of Oregon in the net rankings. Oregon should be favored or they should be a very small underdog in all of them, um, almost a coin flip. Um I, I, I think there's a decent chance that Oregon goes 4-0. I feel very confident they go 4-0 if they play like they did on Saturday. And that's kind of what Altman talked about, what's made this season fo- so frustrating for fans, for the team, and certainly the coaches, is their effort is night and day. They play up and they play down um, to their levels of competition, like we saw against Cal and ASU. Um, I, I think this team, if I'm going to say – I'm not going to do a percentage because I'm going to go back to my – 
my mindset there. Um, but I, I, I think if they get to the Pac-12 championship game, you should feel confident that Oregon will be playing in some game that is attached to the NCAA tournament. Um, I'll give it a percent chance. I'll go out on a limb. I'll give it a 25% chance that they win three or four and get to the tournament. Um, just because, well, you have no clue what team you're going to get any given night when the men's team plays. And, well, uh, as we'll answer eventually, neither do you have the idea of what you're going to get with the women's team, too. Um, I mean, Oregon gets absolutely decimated by Arizona State, a team that has been underwhelming all the year long. But that's not only they not only did they get decimated at, on on away, but they they lost at home to them earlier in the season. You know that's a team that Oregon should theoretically beat both times and add to their resume. Um, and then they come out and play with their hair on fire against you know a top five team in the country in Arizona. Um, so you know Matt just outlined what Oregon has for the rest of the season against the Los Angeles schools and the Washington schools. Um, I don't see them going 0-4 only because Washington is an abysmal basketball team this year. But it could easily be 1-3, and and then they would have to win the Pac-12 championship to get into the tournament. Um, You know, I have a hard time seeing them get into the tournament at this point just because they've had countless opportunities to not lose and solidify their profile. And I'm saying not lose to borderline terrible teams like Cal and like Colorado at home um, or Arizona State at home, but they haven't done it, which is uh, an extremely disappointing part because you have seen when they have played really well, like they did against Arizona. And I know that they didn't win against Arizona, but they were in control for most of that game. You know, they beat UCLA and USC on, you know, on away games in Uh their opposing team's home floor. Oh no. Did I freeze? You froze. Oh no! You're back now. Hey, we're back. We're back. Um, I was saying that it's extremely disappointing that Oregon is up and down because you've seen when they've played at their best how good they can potentially be. Um, like at Ari- like at Arizona when they lost, and like at the Los Angeles schools when they won on the road. Um, but I just don't know what I'm going to get from them on any given night. And so for my percent to be high, I would have to be you know, confident in what, what I can get every night. And I'm just not at this point. Um, I was, you know, we were on record of predicting the next 10 games a couple weeks ago. And um, I gave it a six and four chance because I, you know, I, I didn't see that they could really outperform how they've been playing recently. And um, although they did that against Arizona, they did it against Arizona state. And with UCLA coming to town this weekend or this week, excuse me, they have to play another game like they did against Arizona to win. And yeah. I know they're at home this time around, but how many times have we seen them play like that this year? You know, twice in, in nearly, you know, 30 games. How how am I supposed to be confident in that effort? All right, second one. Real quick, I want to touch on one thing. Because um, yes. Jared brought up a good point. Like, how does this team generate the effort, generate the in- intensity that they showed against – Arizona, um, because they're going to need it against USC and UCLA. Like there are the, the opportunity, the path to the tournament is here in front of them. It's still mm-hmm. attainable. Um, the issue, as Jared has brought up correctly, is we haven't seen this team maybe show that they can navigate the waters consistently against really good teams. 
Um, I think I'm probably a little biased towards the past history of Oregon's teams, always figuring it out. And that's probably where my half glass full approach has is rooted in is that I've seen it happen every other year. You know, there's only been one one year without done it. And I've kind of had this mindset. Well, as long as there's a path there, they'll figure it out. Um, But what I wanted to say was we've seen it. It's been very low key at Mount Arena all season long. This team has certainly given the the Oregon fan base very little consistency to, to come in and support this team and to have a raucous crowd. But if there was ever a week where the team needed a fan support, the team needed a packed Matt Nine Arena. I'm not even saying a sold out. A nine nine thousand, ten thousand people at this game engaged into this game. It's this weekend, um, and and I think that's. I'm really interested to see what the crowd will, will be like because these are two big names. They're two top twenty five teams, top fifteen teams, I think. Um, the rankings came out where we recorded this podcast. And Oregon's season is literally on the line. I'll be curious to see what the fan support is because I do believe the atmosphere at Arizona, even while it was against Oregon, helped Oregon you know, match the intensity that Arizona brought to the field. That's a good point. I like that. Yeah, I know. Watching it on TV, Matt was down there. That Credit to Arizona. That, that, that crowd was – raucous and very much into the game and Oregon didn't fold and played its best basketball. Yeah. It's so I, I think that's notable. You, you, you hope that the crowd understands what's at stake right now and, and hasn't written every, you know, everything off yet, but we'll see. The support has been very, very inconsistent for kind of for both teams. The women's have had probably a little more consistent crowds, but that's also because the, the tickets are cheaper. Um, second question from at the one llama. Can women's basketball still host NCAA round one in two games? And what would it take? Yeah, they can still do it. Um, a win over Stanford on Sunday would have kind of solidified things for me. I think that would have acted as the marquee win. Oregon is still um, in a position where they can absolutely still do it. Um, but that win would have, similar to the you know similar to the Arizona win, solidifying the men's team's kind of at-large status. I think beating Stanford on Sunday would have solidified the women's team's chances of of hosting. And for those unclear, I know we've talked about it, but I'll just lay it out. If you're a top 16 team in the country, so a top four seed, you host your first two games. You play those at your home sites. It's a huge advantage in women's basketball to be a top 16 team. Oregon has been fringe the whole way. Um, the, the, uh, I think this upcoming Thursday, we will get um, the latest batch. Um, Oregon was at 16, the last spot, the last time they did this, about 10 days ago. I anticipate they're probably not in the top 16 right now. The good news is that unlike the men's side where there aren't that many teams that will really improve your net ranking, the women's side has a ton that will. And these two games at Colorado and at Utah are both top 31 teams in the net ranking. Utah's 25th and Colorado's 31st. Oregon wins both of those games. They give themselves a shot. I don't think it solidifies it entirely because you have to go to the NCAA tournament and probably get, I think, at least to the semifinals and maybe to the championship game. Um, if they If they were to win out, and win their last two games here on the road and then win the conference championship, they could probably still be a three seed. You know, I don't think they get to a one seed or a two seed. I think the teams that are in those spots are pretty solidified unless there's chaos, which could happen. But, you know, if they were to win out, they could be a, a three seed. I don't think that's out of, you know, out of consideration. But more likely, because of the inconsistencies that have like this team, where on Friday, I know it wasn't a winning effort, but 
they played, I think, the worst basketball I've seen a, a Kelly Graves coach team play. And uh, for me, is more than, than the average fan because I covered him when he was coaching at Gonzaga. I, I, I was honestly so I, I left with like knots in my stomach because it was so hard to watch against against California. They were 0 for 16 from three. And this is a Cal team that's 11th in the conference, hasn't beaten really anybody all year. And that Oregon beat by 35 down in Berkeley. And yet it kind of took some late game heroics from Sedona Prince, of all people, to, to pull out the victory. And Kelly Graves was livid after the game for good reason. And I thought it was telling and impressive that they came back and played similar to the – we talked about the men against Arizona. The women's team played inspired basketball and, and was in full control of the, of the game, even into the fourth quarter. I mean, they were up 10 points with seven minutes to play, and they didn't score a field goal down the stretch. Some, I would say, iffy officiating, but that's a kind of a, an, an unnecessary gripe when you don't make a field goal for five minutes. You kind of have to put a ball through the net to you know really have that be something that matters. Um but I, I still think if Oregon were to win its two road games next week at Colorado and Utah, and look, that's no, that's no sure thing. Those teams are, are competitive programs. Those teams are both mm-hmm. fighting. They're both kind of on the on the fringe right now. Those are bubble teams. They both need those games. Oregon wins those two games and goes to Vegas and then beats whoever it plays in the quarterfinals. And probably even if it loses in the semis to a team like Arizona, I still think has a chance to host as a top four. But if they were to beat Arizona and play Stanford, most likely in the conference championship game, then I think you're looking at a very, very good chance of it. I think if they get to the conference championship that they'll be hosting. But other than that, there's no sure thing. Anything to share? I think here? that's – yeah, I was just going to say, like, I think that's the path. I think you put it down pretty pretty easily there. Um, they have to win the next two against Utah, Colorado. And Utah's no slouch either. Um, no. I think it's important to, to remind – our, our listeners like they played Oregon really well when Oregon was at home earlier in the season. Um, I think that was only like a four or five point win for Oregon. Um, they're aggressive defensively, which has given Oregon a lot of trouble this year. See Arizona, Arizona state. Um, that's, that's going to be a problem for them. And there it's Utah's usually has a good home crowd. Um, they especially have gotten up for Oregon this year and last year. Um, It'll be a tough game for them for sure. But in order for them to host, um, it's going to take a deep run in the conference tournament for sure. Uh, I, I just think they've, Oregon has given up too many opportunities to have their, it's the same thing as the men's team. They're, yeah. they're both the same. They've had these opportunities to keep going down the path to success, to an easy NCAA bid for the men's, to an easy NCAA hosting opportunity for the women's. And they have just, they just haven't performed when they needed to. And so now that the, the going gets tough, let's see how tough Oregon gets going um, to use the oldest cliche in the book. So a deep tournament run in the, in the Pac-12 should solidify a top 16 seed. Um, the new rankings came out during our podcast and overall Oregon is back into the top 25 um, somehow. But, you know, I think that Stanford for performance could be a little bit of a turning point to say, uh, for the team to at least say, you know, we can we can perform that way regularly. Like it's this doesn't have to be a special occasion. Like we can try as hard as we did against Stanford every night. Um, I think you know Kelly Graves touched on this just a little bit in his post game press conference against Cal, um, discussing like having three game having six six games in two weeks has been hard for the team to prepare in between days. Um, not a lot of days off for them in this time frame. I, I wouldn't use that as an excuse, but I would just you know mention that just to see 
you know, how this team has developed in, in the last two weeks and, you know, how they have very little time to prepare in between games. But now they'll have a little bit more time and some more rest for, for players who have been injured in the past. And, you know, a, a deep run is, is crucial. All right. I'm, I'm kind of – okay, on the fly here, Matt, let's talk this through. Do we want to do the third part as, like, its own podcast at some point? Because the qu- third question is asking us to basically project the ro- like the, the rotation for the 2022-23 men's and women's teams. And I'm looking at the clock going, that we could be doing this till 1.30. <laughs> you know? Yeah, let's save um, – let's save that, and we will table that discussion – here in a couple of weeks because it is important. We, we should talk about it. And maybe instead of um, just projecting the, the rosters for both teams, let's just bring up the fact that Oregon landed a commitment for, for men's hoops, um, which will lead into that projection later on on the show. And, and Brennan Rigsby, a, um, a junior college point guard from Northwest Florida State College, um, Jared, you've covered the team with me. Eric, you've watched this team. I, I, I think it it's a move that made total sense. They need another guard. It, it it feels like this year's team was burned out at the guard position, especially late in the year, just because they have three, and it's a it's a sport and a style where Oregon plays that they need more like four or five. Yeah, I think they just needed another ball handler. Um, I think Rivaldo Soares was supposed to be their third or fourth guard, depending on where you're going to slot him. Um, he's just not a great ball handler. And when you play in the Pac-12, which is a, a tougher tougher conference in, in America, you know, he's he's going to face good defenses. And I, I just don't think that, that Dana and the coaching staff have a, enough confidence in him to keep the ball under control when it, when it comes to that. Um, but they and they run a three guard lineup as their starting lineup, so it's not like they bring one of these guys off the bench, uh, off the pine. Um, they're playing them all game long, so uh, I, I'm I'm not sure how much Rigsby is going to contribute in his first year at Oregon next year. Um, but adding in Dior Johnson as well to a great class, um, that's two more guards, and you know that's just going to help in in terms of depth and longevity for for the course of the season, like you're mentioning how they're kind of burnt out right now. And I will just, because we're not going full into the women's basketball, I will just note that there were some pretty significant upcoming season news with Sedona Prince announcing she will return next year and Niara Siaboli announcing she will not. She went through team senior day on Sunday. Um, that was pretty notable. If you're tired, I won't, we don't, I don't want to get into the whole projecting the starting five and the roster for next year. Cause I think that's like a 30 minute discussion in its own right. Um, and I don't want this podcast to be, 95 minutes but my think it's important for the fans who maybe haven't been paying attention to to know that that oregon will basically have to retool its front court a little bit with sobbly going but the fact that prince returns gives you a pretty direct path of like probably where that's headed and we can have further discussion about some more on on the women's side as well but to the rigsby point just really fast um is he an elite shooter i haven't been paying attention because if that guy can hit a three-point shot that would be great <laughs> he's he made, he's 36 on five attempts a night. Okay. Yeah. So not bad. He's I don't want to say he's an elite shooter like a Mathis was, um, but like like Jared said, he shoots a good clip and his most recent game he made six. 
So he he's a he's a guy that that has the ability to be a you know to be a flamethrower, but he's also probably someone who will will go a couple games without making one. Um, real quick, I had a question for you, Eric. Um, was Hurst was not acknowledged for senior day. Is that just because it's her sixth year and and or is there some kind of possibility she's back next year? I think there's a possibility both Hurst and Hosendove, who are also both of who are seniors. It's a good question, Matt. And I don't have full clarity and we didn't get anything from Kelly after the game. But I think if you didn't go through senior day, I think that's telling that you're probably going to go through a senior day next year. So I expect both to be back. It was just Shannon Deppesy and the Arasabli. Um and, and this could change. I could be I could be totally off base on this um, a little bit, but my expectation is that that both are back. I know there was discussion of of this early on in the year. I just haven't heard anything in the last couple of weeks. Frankly, the here, just one thing that's been kind of notable here is we, we talk about um, you know the women's team playing so many games. We haven't had a midweek press event with Kelly Graves. I think in five weeks, and that's usually where these kind of questions get asked. And I wanted to ask, what's the deal with Nara's future? Because the sense had been for a while, from my perspective, from conversations I had with people, that she was good. This is what the outcome was going to be. We didn't have a chance to ask it, and I wanted to ask on Friday, but they lost. Demos lost to Cal, and Kelly Graves was not in a mood to ask such questions. So um, we basically learned on, I think it was Saturday afternoon, via via social media, that she would be going through senior day. So um, hopefully, there's more opportunity to talk with Coach Graves about these kind of big picture things because. Right now, it's been just post game, and it's kind of hard to bring up those, those sort of topics. Oregon will will acknowledge Will Richardson, Eric Williams, and Jacob Young um, for their senior day on Saturday against USC. Now, Richardson and Williams both have a year of eligibility if they want to use it. Um, they've been listed as seniors all year. Dana Allman said at the beginning of the year that he felt like this was Will's last season. They've recruited as if those two guys will be going pro as well. Um, so I, I doubt there's a, a chance that they come back, but just wanted to bring it up that, hey, they have years of eligibility left because of the COVID year, but it doesn't sound like they're going to choose to use them. Um, and they'll they'll probably be acknowledged at Oregon. So it's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back on Tuesday – or excuse me, we'll be back on Wednesday – with another edition of the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.